Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom and welcome. There's uh, two things uh, on my mind. One um, I don't like talking about. The other one I do, in fact, like talking about. Um, the first thing I'm going to discuss, obviously, are the events that took place at this, uh, on the outside of the synagogue this past week. I don't like talking about anti-Semitism. It's not the thing that inspires me to be Jewish, although I do understand that the, um, the external pressures and fears that people may have about threats against their Jewish identity, in fact, may very well be something that does inspire some, at least, awareness of their Jewish identity. I don't like talking about it. But uh, my Wednesday, Thursday, and part of my Friday was uh, filled. Here's the interesting thing. When something like this happens in a synagogue, and now I know this firsthand, and you approach the building, you see that someone has defaced the outside of it with uh, symbols. In this case, the uh, Beth Shalom Synagogue had been defaced with graffiti and a swastika. After the initial shock of that, and you, the police are called, and you're kind of like, okay, I can't believe this happened, and whatnot. The real tiring work after that is all the media attention that you get where the waves and waves of people who want to report on this thing that happened. And so apart from the local and national media attention, uh, I was giving radio interviews in Israel of all places. Uh, friends of mine in Israel, I was shocked that they had heard that this has happened. And I guess one of the things for us to consider is that certainly any time a synagogue becomes a place where there's an anti-Semitic attack, it always receives appropriate amount of attention. And it, any amount of attention should never be considered too much to an event like this. And the uh, other element is, is that of all the things that you could write on a synagogue wall, and I'm going to leave it to your very fertile imaginations to consider all the different kinds of things that people could write on the walls of a synagogue. But as I pointed out on the Israeli uh, interview that I did yesterday, yes, no, Thursday, excuse me, I said, why did they choose, of all things, a swastika? In other words, what does that represent? What does that actually say? Because as I said to you before, there's certainly a large menu items that people could put on the walls of a synagogue. And the swastika, of course, is the penultimate symbol of a moment in human history where Jews were killed at a pace that was unprecedented in human history. It recalls the moment when six million Jews, one and a half million of which were children under the age of 12, were murdered for no other reason than being Jewish. And when people place a swastika on a synagogue, on a Jewish home, on a Jewish institution, on the campaign billboards of a Jewish candidate or on the campaign billboards of a non-Jewish candidate who has given their support to the Jewish community time and time again. What they're basically saying is that that was the right thing to have done and they only wish it should happen again. That we should go back to a moment or move to a moment in time where Jews are murdered and put to an end. That's what that symbol means. And so rather than just labeling this as a hate crime or an anti-Semitic attack, which it all is certainly, 
I think it is worthy of investigating and analyzing a little bit more about the nature of the attack. And so when you see the swastika, understand well what it is saying. Because while an attack is an attack, how people attack you is different one way to the other. And it's meant to send a message. So understand what they're trying to say. That's not what I'd like to talk about, so I've said my piece on that. The thing I actually want to talk about is the first time I ever cried in a movie. I was five years old. And uh, my mother brought me to a Sunday afternoon movie, and the movie was named Old Yeller. Anybody ever see Old Yeller before? Stanley. Did you cry? He won't tell us. <laughs> Old Yeller uh, was a movie from the uh, late 60s, early 70s, early 70s, I think 73 maybe, 72. It's a story about a boy and a dog. And um, in this case, I usually don't like to ruin the ends of movies, but I suspect that you're not going to go home and watch Old Yeller. <laughs> I haven't seen it on TV in years, but this uh, story about this boy and a dog in the American uh, Midwest during the 1800s, the boy and the dog undergo travails and tests and whatnot, and the dog it shows itself to be this remarkable companion and friend to the, to the young boy, and in the end, the dog dies. Of course, today that wouldn't happen because all of our movies have to have happy endings. But I remember sitting there in the movie and the tears were pouring down my face. And my mother, I think, wisely anticipating that bringing me to see Old Yeller, what that would do to me, she brought plenty of tissues with her. <laughs> and my face was just being dabbed with tissues. The root, of course, my uh, sentimentality and emotionality with, uh, with dogs is that I grew up with dogs. Growing up, uh, we lived on Long Island, um, outside of New York City. My father traveled a lot back then, and uh, they didn't have alarm systems in homes. Think about it. You close your front doors today, and you lock the doors, and then before you go to bed at night, you probably did that little pin pad thing, and you set the alarm. Back then, they didn't really have alarm systems. They had them for banks, I guess, but not for homes. So. Uh, my father wisely figured, I'm going to go buy a dog. And we got this big, big Airedale Terrier, and he sent them to guard school. I think the dog left for like three weeks. And then my father got another one, figuring that if one was good, two was better. And so I grew up my whole life with dogs. And so my care and concern and love for the dogs, when I went to go see Old Yeller, it just absolutely scared me that these dogs could die and then leave me without these animals that I had fallen in love with. The reason why I mention this, not only because it's a memory that came to me this past week, but this week's Torah portion has the most mitzvot in the entire Torah. I know it's at the end of uh, Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, and that it seems to be the end of the Torah. This portion is read in the summer months. People are on vacation. They're not in shul so much. Certainly now in COVID, people aren't in shul much at all and is a listing both of big mitzvot, big commandments, and smaller ones. Big ones such as if you invade a city, what do you do with the people who are captives there? Big ones such as dealing with what happens if a woman is raped? 
big ones such as dealing if you have a rebellious child. I mean, big, big societal ideas about how you raise children and how you curb sexual violence and how you deal with both uh, kind of communal and national violence. Big, big ideas. And then sprinkled in there are these little ones. And ideas such as, in Hebrew it's called shatnez. Shatnez is the prohibition against wearing garments that have linen and wool woven together. Linen and wool woven together. And there's other smaller mitzvot. And then sprinkled in the mitzvot are these. And listen carefully. You should not see your neighbor's ox or his sheep that are wandering away, and you should ignore that they are lost. In other words, that there are ox or sheep that somehow got out of the fenced area of your neighbor, and you see them wandering away. You're not allowed to turn around and say, ah, who cares? Who cares? And if you happen to see an animal wandering on its own, clearly belonging to another person, and you don't know who that person is, you also can't turn around and say, that's not my problem. But the Torah goes on to tell us that you have to, that you have to bring it into your home. You have to feed it and water it until such time as this unknown person who is the owner comes and reclaims the animal which is a very open-ended idea because this could go on for months, years. The animal, in theory, could live so long before the owner comes for it that you've cared for it its entire life. It goes on further to say that if you see the uh, donkey or the ox of someone else falling under the burden of what it is carrying, Hakim takimimo, you have to take the burdens off of the animal so that it can stand on its own. Later on, the Torah goes on to tell us, that if you come before a nest and you want the eggs that are under the bird, that are in the nest, eggs that this bird had given birth to, you have to send the mother birder away before you're allowed to take the eggs. The Torah goes on to tell us as follows. That you are not allowed to take an ox and a donkey and tie them together on a harvesting machine that they pull at the same time. The Ibn Ezra, the great Spanish commentator, says, why can't you take an ox and a donkey and have them pull the same harvesting material, the harvesting machine at the same time? Why can't you do that? So the Ibn Ezra says, well, for the obvious reasons, because the ox is stronger and the donkey is weaker. And if the, and if the, and if the uh, ox is pulling to its ability, which assumingly it will, it'll put stress on the donkey to keep up with the ox. The Chizkuni, who's a 13th century French commentator, says something even more interesting, I think. He says that the ox is a ma'ale geirah, it's a ruminator. Do you know what a ruminator is? Not just a person who perseverates over problems. But a ruminator is an animal, like a cow. It eats, it has two stomachs. So it eats, it 
breaks up the food, and then it doesn't digest it right away, but it brings it up again. The expression in English is, it chews its cud. It's a ruminator. Brings the food up again, and then after that second chewing, it's able to pass it into its second stomach, and it's able to digest it. Why is that an issue? Because these animals, cows and oxen and the like, that the food that they eat is so fibrous, grass, leaves, things like that, that their stomachs cannot eat it in one consumption, in one cycle. It has to be chewed over and over again. A ruminator, a ruminator. That the ox is a ruminator and the donkey is not. The donkey will eat anything. So the, so the Chizkuni, this French commentator from the 13th century says, what will happen is, when the ox and the donkey are tied together and they're pulling the till that's turning up the ground, that the ox will be able to eat the whole time because it's always bringing up food. And the donkey won't be able to stop and it'll go hungry. These laws are generally considered under a category called Tzabachayim, of not causing cruelty to animals. There are other examples of it. For example, if you have a dog or a cat or some other animal in your home, you are not allowed to eat in the morning before you feed your animals. It is a rabbinic prohibition. The animals must be fed first. When you're eating and sitting down to eat and the animals are there, you must give them a little bit of food before you eat your own food. Once again, a rabbinic law, so that the animals do not suffer at the sight of seeing food, that they have not been given privilege also to share it. That before you take drink for yourself, you must make sure that your animals are watered as well. Remember well the story of Rivka, of Rebecca. What does she say? She's looking for, she's looking for water first to give to the animals, and only then did Rachel give water to Jacob. She watered the animals first. The broad idea of caring for animals is even seen in a different way. It's seen that in the story of Jonah that we read on Yom Kippur afternoon. The ancient rabbis ask, why was the city of Nineveh, why was it, why was it ordered to be destroyed? Why did God want to destroy the city of Nineveh? And the reason why is because they were cruel to animals. The Torah takes great, great care in ensuring that we take great care of the things that God places into our charge. The animals that are a reflection of the beauty of creation are given to us as nature is to obviously leverage it and use it for the benefit of human ingenuity and human life but not to abuse it, to take care of it and understand that these things in nature, be it animate objects like animals or inanimate objects like trees and water and the sky and the air that we breathe in, these are gifts. And you must be gentle with them and be grateful for them. I always told my wife that we would never get a dog again. I always told her 
even when the kids were younger and in the house, I always said, I don't want another child in the house because dogs are like two-year-old children, but they never grow up. They're always stuck in that moment. Anyways, because my home is not a dictatorship or a theocracy, it's, it's a democracy, we ended up getting a dog this past winter. His name is Benny. And uh, I reflected this week as I was going over the Torah portion, and this idea came to me, that the ancient rabbi said something particularly about dogs. They said that the word kelev, which is the Hebrew word for dog, they said it stands for the words kelev, which means like your heart. That there's nothing like a dog that is as empathic, that feels your emotions. That when you're happy, it is happy. And when you're sad, the dog knows, and the dog is sad too. But I also realized something else about that word kelev. It not only means that the dog is like our hearts, like our emotions, but the word kelev can also mean that it shows our hearts. When we look at our dogs and our cats, when we look at the animals throughout the world, it says as much about them as it also says about us as human beings. How we care for the things that are truly the most beautiful gifts from God. Shabbat Shalom.